Biomechatronics with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to the Robots Podcast. My name is Jana and today's episode will focus on biomechatronics, or more precisely on exoskeletons and prosthetics. Dr. Hugh Herr, now director of the biomechatronics group at MIT, probably understands better than others what this kind of technology could mean to people after an accident led to the amputation of both of his legs below the knee. He spoke to our interviewer Audro about the accident and how it shaped his life and career, but also about prosthetics and the future of exoskeleton technology. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hello. Can you introduce yourself? Um, my name is Hugh Herr. Uh, I'm a professor at MIT. I co-direct the Center for Extreme Bionics. I, I also uh, am the founder of a company called Bionics Medical Technologies. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a bit about how you have um, lost your legs from the knee down? I was uh, an avid mountain climber. I started mountain climbing when I was seven years old. Uh, When I was in my early teenage years, I was considered a child prodigy in climbing. When I was 17, I I was uh, out with my climbing partner at the time. We, um, our goal was to climb Mount Washington in the winter by ascending Huntington's Ravine, which is a, about an 800-foot, um, very steep ice wall. And uh, we as- ascended very quickly the, the 800-foot wall and then uh, decided to continue, to continue towards the summit. Uh, the weather conditions got worse and worse. Uh, even even though we went just five minutes above the, the head wall of, of Huntington's Ravine, um, we were not able to uh, retrace our tracks, and we we descended the mountain. Uh, and by the time we got to tree line, it was clear that we had we had gone off course. Uh, but we were stuck at that point. We really didn't have the rational choice of retracing our tracks and going towards the summit because at that point, wind speeds were so high that one could not even stand. So we're forced to go down this ravine system. It's called the the Great um, Gully, the Great Gulf region. Uh, it's the wilderness side of Mount Washington. So it was there that we spent uh, several days uh, in the most extreme bushwhacking that one can imagine. The average depth of snow was to the waist. Sometimes it was to the chest. Uh, we were just simply trapped in a, in a white maze. We dug in um, when we're, we were not able to move anymore out of exhaustion um, by creating kind of these caves, snow caves. Uh, during the day, we would walk. We would probably make uh, two, two miles of progress in a complete kind of marathon effort in the deep snow. We, we made it within a few miles of a roadway and then couldn't walk anymore because of severe frostbite. We were later uh, discovered or found um, by a person out snowshoeing for the day. And we were plucked from the mountain via helicopter and and then treated for severe frostbite and hypothermia. 
Mm-hmm. And then, so from there, because of the severe frostbite, you had both of your legs amputated from the knee down. That's right. Um, after a few months of effort by my medical team to quote-unquote save my biological limbs, they were amputated. Mm-hmm. So we were on the mountain late January. My legs were amputated mid-March. Mm-hmm. And then so afterwards you wanted to return to rock climbing. You, right. You were told otherwise, though. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know what I would be able to do with my new body. And my father said, "If you want, if you want, want, want to climb, you sh- you should climb." Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, I really had no clear examples of uh, what life would be uh, using uh, using prostheses. So I was I was um, my limbs were amputated. I was I went through a, a, about a month or two of healing, and then I was fitted with my first pair of artificial limbs. I was shocked at their lack of technological sophistication. They were, they were actually made of plaster, plaster of Paris, and it was recommended that I not walk without canes or crutches because the limbs might actually break. <laughs> they were kind of these crazy trainer limbs. Um, but uh, the first weekend I went uh, home from the rehabilitation center. They didn't allow me to take my legs because uh, they knew what I would what I was capable of and the next weekend they were stupid enough to allow me to take my legs and I went climbing with my brother Tony yes huh. and then how did you begin to adjust your prosthetic limbs uh, for climbing and various purposes I suppose yeah so I quickly abandoned the, uh, the notion that the limbs needed to look human uh, and I quickly focused on function so I thought to myself, what, what would be optimal designs for the vertical world of rock and ice climbing? And what, what emerged was a series of different feet for rock and ice surfaces. So feet that could stand on small rock edges the width of a coin. Mm-hmm. Uh, feet that could wedge into rock fissures, uh, even where the human foot cannot penetrate. Feet that could penetrate ice walls. Um, I made my legs uh, exceedingly lightweight. Um, to increase my my strength to weight ratio, mm-hmm. so through design I was able to to etch out um, a few advantages. Um, there were disadvantages, but I gained enough advantages um, that it was only twelve months after my limbs were amputated that I was climbing better uh, with artificial limbs than I'd ever achieved with normal biological limbs before the accident. I see. And how did you transition into academia from this, and how did you know that that is what the way you should pursue or continue? Yeah, to be honest, I uh, my the the men in my family, my father and brothers and grandfathers were were in uh, the business of construction, and I, I really. You know, given how uncomfortable artificial limbs were at the time, I couldn't imagine being on a construction site for the rest of my life. Um, I also couldn't imagine being on the construction site for the rest of my life. So, <laughs> so I decided to go to college, which I, I never planned to do, because my intent was to be the best climber in the world um, before, before the accident. 
so I went to college and I signed up for very basic math courses and computer science courses. And I just I developed an extraordinary passion for the topics and uh, couldn't couldn't uh, stop studying. I just absolutely love love the material. And that it's interesting because science and passion for science and math actually replaced somewhat my passion for for climbing mountains. Hmm. And then you began to apply what you were learning to your own prostheses with what you were learning, or when did you start doing that? Yeah, I did have the goal um, of, of continuing to design prostheses. The, the experience of designing new climbing legs and su- succeeding so wildly beyond everyone's expectation, including my own, was very inspirational for me because I realized the power of technology to heal, to rehabilitate, even to extend human capability beyond innate uh, capabilities. So that that was also a, a clear motivation in my um, acquisition of knowledge and going back to school. My first patent was uh, was obtained, issued uh, very close to the time when I was graduating undergraduate school in physics. Mm-hmm. It was on a... Uh, the mechanical interface between the residuum and the artificial limb. Uh, the idea was to use uh, fluid bladders in certain configurations. Hmm. And I later proposed to my future MIT advisor that, that I would build this interface and uh, have actuation pumps and pressure sensing and continually modulate the pressure field around the residuum. Gotcha. So on the spot where the prosthetic limb interfaces with the residual limb, is what you're talking about? Yes. And then so you would use some sort of fluid to make a vacuum so that it would stay very well, very well attached? Well, yeah, vacuum uh, offering suspension, but but also uh, offering loading support. So loading support. a pressure field that would be very comfortable around the, uh. the end of the limb, enabling a person to walk without discomfort. Can you tell me a bit about the prostheses that you're wearing now? Uh, I'm I'm wearing two bionic uh, legs. Mm-hmm. Uh, both legs have three microprocessors and twelve sensors. Um, the microprocessors or brains, if you will, the devices control a muscle-like actuator that mm-hmm. moves uh, and stiffens and powers uh, my my synthetic ankles. What sensors are on board? Uh, the sensors measure position, speed, acceleration, force, and temperature, as well as joint position and speed. What force sensing are you doing? Contact with the ground? No. Um, so the, the device has tendon-like series springs mm-hmm. and also a parallel elasticity. So the, the torque sensing is of... Uh, the torque that the series elastic actuator sees and the parallel spring sees. So you can, one can produce uh, net torque mm-hmm. on the joint. Can you describe how they look a little bit? Uh, they look they look interesting. There's uh, there's uh, two black batteries that sit on top and then there's black anodized uh, metal shields coming around the ankle. 
and then inside those shields are all the electronics and the motor system. And then uh, attached to that is a synthetic foot made of, again, black carbon composite. Mm-hmm. What kind of grip on the bottom? Just um, the uh, I I wear the carbon foot, and the glue to that carbon foot is a is a, a rubber, a typical mm-hmm. rubber that you'd find on the bottom of a shoe. I see. And what kind of battery life? Um, we get a few thousand fast walking steps. And for me and my lifestyle, that's that's fine to get through a day. But uh, if one wants to walk, say, 10,000 steps, uh, one would just take a, a spare battery or two. The mm-hmm. batteries are modular. You just snap them in like a power tool. I see. How does this compare to other prostheses? So all other foot ankle prostheses in the world are are human powered, uh, meaning the the energy of the human attached to them drives the movement. Um, the legs that I'm wearing are bionic. They inject uh, mechanical energy into a person's stride mm-hmm. uh, in a way that's similar to uh, what the muscles used to do that were lost on amputation. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a bit about how they are fit to your residual limbs? So at, at MIT, we're, uh, I have a team of people thinking about fit. Um, what is the nature of comfort? What are the mathematics of comfort? What, this, what is the science of comfort? So we, we build uh, mathematical descriptions of the tissues of the, of the ends of the residuum and theories of how the shape of the uh, structure that comes around the residuum and the stiffness of that shape mm-hmm. uh, to optimize comfort. So basically the end of my limb goes into a, a cup-like uh, device that supports my, my weight. And mm-hmm. So the shape of that cup is critically important to comfort. So we mathematically derive that shape and then we 3D print the structure. Mm-hmm. And you're identifying where there are hard and soft spots in the residual limb so that you can match them or match them with their complements, so soft to hard, hard to soft, so that yeah. it's more comfortable. And then what's what's very complex is the shape of the equilibrium shape of the synthetic skin, if you will. Mm-hmm. So that's um, that's that's based on tissue, uh, how compliant the tissues are, that shape. What do you mean exactly? We uh, mathematically we we understand the compliance of the tissues. Uh, and what do you mean compliance of the tissue? How soft or how stiff they are. Okay. What about stretch of say the skin? Does that apply as well? Uh, in a different way. Um, I wear a, a second skin silicone liner, so the design of that second skin relates to the skin's strain field or the, the amount of stretch in the skin. I see. And how, so are they attached by this vacuum principle or how do you attach uh, them to the residual limb? There's a number of ways to attach. Um, you can have a, a pin and a lock uh, at the base of the, of, the, of the limb. You can have suction, you can have a, mm-hmm. a sleeve that goes, spans from the biological leg across the, the socket. So there's a number of ways to keep hold it on. 
What have been some challenges in designing this? Um, the interface. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, you, if you ask a thousand persons with limb amputation what's the number one problem they once saw, probably all thousand would say the mechanical interface, the mechanical attachment. Mm-hmm. Um, why? Because it's uncomfortable. Um, so it's, it's a very, very important problem. It's a very complex problem um, because no, no one understands what comfort is uh, for any device, whether it be a shoe or a prosthesis. So we're, we're developing that science, and it's, it's very exciting. Uh, we want to be able to produce sockets that are comfortable. We want to produce them fast at low cost. Mm-hmm. And so what are our means of doing this? So you 3D print the part. How do you model the residual limb? We, the, the, we uh, take an MRI uh, image of, of the limb, and that tells mm-hmm. us where the shape of the bones and the where the skin is and where the muscles are. Um, we then use robotic palpation tools to compress the tissues and measure displacement speeds and forces, which tell us the fundamental constants of the tissues. Hmm. We then build a continuum mechanical model. So if you now, if you have a mathematical description of the biological segment, you can then apply pressure fields and the model will tell you how the tissues deform and then we define particular de- tissue deformations that are healthy and comfortable. I see. And so the goal is to make this cheap and replicable? Yeah. yeah. So my, my vision of the future is that each, each human individual will have a digital representation of their body. Mm-hmm. And when they, when they need um, any type of uh, bionic device that digital body will be used to compute an optimal, uh, personalized uh, bionic device for the human. And this can refer to clothing as well? Correct. So clothing, shoes, bras, bike seats, bionic limbs, exoskeletons, neural implants that go inside the body. Yes. Everything so, will be personalized. So everything is optimized. And this relies heavily on 3D printing? That's, uh, 3D or printing, additive manufacturing? 3D printing is a tool. Yes. It's not the dominant science yes um, one that is to say one can build these interfaces with molding processes and not using digital fabrication digital fabrication is sometimes nice because it reduces the uh, the fabrication frequency mm-hmm. but it's not necessary it's so, not the the secret sauce what's the role of industry and academia in producing these prostheses so uh, uh, as stated I'm a professor um, so the typical model of a professor in the U.S. is they receive some type of grant monies. They conduct research with a team comprising both staff and students. Um, there are inventions. The uh, patents are filed. The patents are owned by the university. The university then license, licenses the intellectual property um, to founders of a company. Those founders can be the professors and students that invented, and often that's uh, the model, um, the most successful model of, of translation. Mm-hmm. So in my case, that's exactly what happened. That uh, There was patents generated. Uh, I'm the inventor, my students are the inventors. So a company's established, and then there's a, a contractual relationship between the company and the university 
licensing the IP within a certain domain of use. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what, what was done with uh, my company, Binex Medical Technologies. Yes. And then, so what role does the tech, what does the company play in developing the technology? So at, at university, we, we do science, we, uh, we do research that's publishable, we test hypotheses, we do things that have never been done before, never been tested before. At the company, um, basically uh, crude prototypes that were built at the university are commercialized. So what that means is make, getting them light enough, uh, most important, strong enough, durable enough, manufacturable at the right price point. Um, and then all the, the sales and clinical services necessary uh, to distribute that product globally. Mm-hmm. So what does it look like when someone puts on the biome ankle for the first time? So we, in the design of the ankle the, um, is biomimetic inspired by nature, by the human body. Uh, so the algorithms that are running on these small computers on my ankles control the motor as if um, the motor were made of muscles and, uh, and tendon and the whole structure was, uh, was bone and whatnot. So it, the whole thing moves as if it was made of flesh and bone, even though it's made of synthetics. Because of that, when it's fit to a human, the human is used to those dynamics. So there's little to no training required. And, and often in minutes, the person is saying things like they have their life back, they have their life back, and they're either crying out of happiness or laughing out of happiness. So it's, it's, uh, it's fun to go to these fittings, actually. All right. Um... So I'd like to move into talking about exoskeletons. So first, would you define what an exoskeleton is and then tell us how it relates to your work with prostheses? My definition of an exoskeleton is a, is a device that attaches to the body, intimately to the body, that augments physicality. Um, what I mean by augments, it, uh, it, mean, it enables a human being to do something that's beyond natural capability uh, for an innate healthy body the word orthosis is a medical term um, for a robot that attaches to the body that enables a person with a disability or some condition to to move more naturally Um, so uh, uh, exoskeletons are wearable robots that that augment Mm -hmm. and so can you tell me a bit about metabolic cost as a parameter for designing exoskeletons? Yeah, to an, uh, one goal in exoskeletal uh, design is to augment uh, human bipedal locomotion. <clears throat> and an excellent metric of evaluation is the amount of food energy a person requires when using the exoskeleton versus not using the exoskeleton. Why? You know, my view is that if the exoskeleton increases energy levels of the human, the human won't want to use it. It won't have uh, sufficient value. So, so it's, a, it's a very important uh, metric to, of evaluation. Mm-hmm. So basically they'll discard it and not use it if the uh, metabolic cost is higher than the task or higher than it would be to accomplish otherwise? You know, unless they want to get exercise, but if they want to actually be augmented and enhance physicality, no, 
they, they won't use it. I see. And so how do we measure this? Uh, typically, uh, for aerobic exercise, it's measured by uh, monitoring how much oxygen a person uses when they breathe and how much carbon dioxide is expelled. So with those two rates, uh, one can compute uh, the cal- calories burned per unit time. Mm-hmm. And would you describe the exoskeleton used to decrease metabolic costs uh, for walking? So the first exoskeleton that was envisioned and published in the world that I'm aware of was in the 19th century, um, over 100 years ago. So a Russian inventor called Yagen. His dream was to augment the Russian army, Russian soldiers. Um, but it wasn't until 2014 that someone succeeded in building an exoskeleton that augments walking and running. Um, my, my group was the first to accomplish that goal. It's, a, um, it's, a, it's an exoskeleton that spans the foot and comes up about mid-calf, mid, uh, just below the knee. And it's, uh, fundamentally, it's an artificial calf muscle. The calf muscle is the most important muscle in bipedal walking. It mm-hmm. supplies a, about 80% of the power to walk. So it's where humans are most um, inefficient. So the exoskeleton adds an artificial calf muscle and injects energy into the gait like the calf muscle um, to reduce the metabolic cost of the biological calf. Mm-hmm. So what does it look like? How And what kind of actuators are you using? Uh, the actuators are electric-based. Um, it looks very interesting. It looks like this crazy structure, this crazy shoe that goes higher than is normal and has these springy struts that go up in the side of the leg and then a motor that sits on kind of a shin guard mm-hmm. that pulls on that strut and, and powers movement. Yes, and so you're it's using some sort of tether and you're pulling that and that's how you flex the calf to augment walking? Flex the ankle, yes. Flex the ankle. Now, why... And you're using the body as its own joint for this, correct? It's very important that exoskeletons are very, very, very lightweight because uh, whenever you add weight to the legs, metabolic cost increases. So um, in an effort to reduce the, the weight or the mass of the device, we, uh, we actually uses, use the body's joints as the bearing um, instead of putting a synthetic bearing on the device. Mm-hmm. And so what kind of sensing is done with the device? Uh, the, all the electronics are up high, um, by design, so you can walk through a, a deep, deep puddle of water and not affect the system. Um, so we measure positions and speeds and accelerations, essentially. And mm-hmm. then from those data, we can compute torques and forces, given okay. a, a model of this of the structure. So you can infer where the person is in their gait and then determine if you should pull to assist the Essentially. Cat. I see. Why did you choose to revolve around the ankle? Again, because the calf muscle is the most important muscle in walking. Mm-hmm. Are there other advantages to it as well? Um, being that there's not so much squishy... Uh, yeah, the, the shin bone is um, it's where, the, where, the, where the leg is most stiff, most rigid. And it's a, it's a tremendous plate of bone to, 
to apply forces on from an exoskeleton. Mm-hmm. And so can you only use this for walking? Could someone use it for running or other activities? Um, we, it's, the device is very versatile. Um, it's powered. It has smart computation. So yes, you can walk, run, up and down hills, whatever you want to do. It's as versatile as the, as the human leg itself. I see. And what kind of efficiency gains are we getting? So we've, uh, w- there's a number of peer-reviewed manuscripts. Um, we, again, we were the first in 2014 to augment the human in a peer-reviewed publication. That first publication, the human subjects were wearing a 23-kilogram backpack, and we augmented by 8%. Um, we later conducted a separate study on an unloaded humans, just regular walking, and augmented by, on average, 10%. You know, the variation is huge, so you have N subjects. Some subjects are as high as almost 30%. Some are low, and everyone, every, everything in between. What do you believe creates that variation? Um, it's a really interesting um, question. Um, no one really knows, uh, but every, everyone in the field has observed this phenomenon. Hmm. That when you put a single exoskeletal design on and people, you get huge variation. My belief is, you know, you take 10 people and you can, you can distribute them in terms of athletic capability. Some people are have a very smart spinal cords and they can exploit any tool or device very, very quickly. And others are clueless. Hmm. Um, so that's, that's po- a possibility what? where training or acclimatization may be effective to mitigate that variance. Mm-hmm. Now, people that use it, what do they say it feels like? It's one, I mean, the human body is extraordinary, so uh, a person begins to use it, they very quickly, I mean, initially they feel the, the energy that it provides, but very quickly the human body gets used to it, and then you take it off and you kind of stumble and your own biological normal legs feel heavy, awkward, and slow. So this tells us that wearing bionic structures will just be commonplace in the future. Mm. And innate normal bodies will just be boring. Now, what kind of upper limit do you think we can get on efficiency with this device? With a foot ankle device, it's not known. Um, I would say, I would say at least 25%. But it may be even higher, which is very, very exciting. And then, will you benefit, you think, from augmenting other muscles or other movements? You know, we don't know. What's intriguing is our recent paper uh, on the device. What's intriguing is that when, when you add exoskeletal torque and power at the ankle, not only do you reduce the the power requirements of the biological ankle, but also you reduce the power requirements of the knee and hip. So even though the exoskeleton doesn't span the knee and hip, we nonetheless reduce muscular effort at those joints tremendously. So it begs the question, do you really need an exoskeleton that spans the whole leg? Or is Mm -hmm. the foot ankle sufficient? Why would you think that it decreases the expenditure at those muscles? It's just the dynamics of the system. Um, the body, when you give it power, it, it uses that power distributively across the entire leg in an optimal way. 
It's a new gate. It's a different gate. It is? Than normal. How does it look compared to normal? It looks normal to an untrained eye. I mean, to... It doesn't look like a bizarre walk. Interesting. But it's, it is a distinctly new gate. So you give the human energy from a bionic structure in it, the body quickly figures out how to optimally use that energy to minimize its own metabolic food energy. That's what humans are really good at. Um, we're inherently lazy and we minimize energy really, really well. We're terrible at detecting high stress levels and probabilities of, of injury. We injure our knee and we're surprised. We injure our hip and we're surprised. So an incredible value of exoskeletons is to give the human something that they're bad at. So one class of exoskeletons in the future will be exoskeletons that enable us to to do athletic performances without a threat of injury. Hmm. How would the how would those work? I don't know, but it would they would have to detect high levels of stress and fatigue and biological structures mm. and then tell the human to stop or to move in a different way. So imagine a world where our top athletes never injure. Imagine how the impact to to human athletic performance. Performance would just go through the roof. Because what, often what mitigates top performance is injury and recovering from injury and not training harder because you might injure, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. What other future applications of exoskeletons do you see? Um, you know, another, another form of augmentation is maintaining one's inherent physicality independent of age. So imagine a world where you run your best marathon time when you're 60 and you've been running marathons since the age of 15. Um, why? Because you're a more skilled athlete. Um, so as you age, technology uh, uh, eliminates the impact of age-related degeneration. Hmm. By neural implants, maybe by regenerative medicine, maybe by exoskeletons uh, of various forms of augmentation. That's a very palpable form of augmentation. Most people ethically or would be fine with, with that. And most people will be excited about maintaining quality of life as they age. So what are some bottlenecks in exoskeletons? As a, or What technological bottlenecks are there? I'm not sure there are technological bottlenecks. I think that largely the components are, are sufficient. Um, so it's really a, a problem of design. In architecture, so the the human machine interaction is something that's uh, unknown. So, putting a bionic structure on a human and adapting its control in real time, in a in a kind of a human machine optimization, is critically important to the future of of this area of design. So, imagine putting on a device and. You're just starting to walk and run, and it, it adjusts its behavior to optimize its performance with you mm -hmm. in a collaborative effort. Gotcha. Is this one of your research interests moving forward? Absolutely. Gotcha. Uh, so what is the future? What are some of your near-term research goals? 
Um, I want to I want to do three things um, first and foremost. Um, one is I want to advance better better muscle like actuators, uh, perhaps actuators that are better than biological muscle, uh, kind of the engine of bionics. I want I want to understand electrical interface between uh, the peripheral human nervous system and devices, so how to talk to nerve endings, essentially. I also want to understand how to attach machines to the body mechanically in a comfortable way. So those those three innovations um, will really define bionics in this century. If you, if you solve all three, you're more or less done. You've solved bionics. Limb bionics, that is. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for today. As always, just visit our website at robohub.org for plenty more robot-related information, videos, and podcast episodes. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Biomechatronics with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.